Hi, I'm Gary and this is episode 85 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at the iPhone and how that technological evolution is very relevant to electric cars and renewables. Before we started, I wanted to remind anybody who wants a little bit extra from the podcast and the newsletter to head over to patreon.com slash evmusings and sign up to become a Patreon for specific Patreon-only episodes and blog posts and early access to the podcast. Our main topic of discussion today is the iPhone, sort of. On January the 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs stood on the stage at Macworld San Francisco and introduced, in his own words, three revolutionary products. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. Everyone there was expecting to see three new bits of tech hardware, so imagine their surprise when he flashed up an image of a rectangular piece of rounded corner black glass with a single button at the bottom. Huh? That was, of course, the iPhone. In just about every way, it was revolutionary. It did more things than any other device on the market. It had a user interface unlike any other device on the market. And it worked in a different way to any other device on the market. It literally created a whole new market segment, the smartphone. At the time, remember, things like the BlackBerry and the Nokia phones were all the rage. Clunky devices with physical buttons and poorly designed screens. Devices that did a couple of things not particularly well. Did you ever try to surf the internet on a BlackBerry? But this was all that many people had ever known. They loved their Blackberries, addicted to them even. So when the iPhone came through, there were a hardcore of people who dismissed it out of hand. I mean, the first version of the iPhone was revolutionary. But it wasn't really that good, especially when you compare it with what we have today. I mean, there was no app store. You were limited to the apps that shipped with the device. It had a fairly low resolution screen. The camera wasn't great. It wasn't particularly fast. It didn't have a huge amount of storage. It didn't even have cut and paste, for goodness sake. And boy, was it expensive for a phone. But it did start something of a revolution when it came to phones. Within a couple of years, companies like Samsung had started to bring out similar devices. Google jumped on the bandwagon and put together the Android operating system. Third-party developers started to put together apps you could load onto iPhones and Android devices. It started to snowball. Soon, other companies were making phones that were a rectangular piece of rounded corner black glass with a single button at the bottom or equivalent. And these devices didn't work well unless you could put a SIM card in there that had a data portion to it. You needed to be able to use data to serve the web rather than your phone signal. Not long after that, the telecoms companies got involved and started putting together a new style of communication protocol, 3G. Then 4G came on the market and now we're looking at 5G. Soon people were able to get really good data download speeds over the telecoms provider's network. Then something else happened. The smartphone became indispensable. More and more of people's lives were being moved onto their phone. The ecosystem around this started to improve. Developers recognised this and developed accordingly. Did you just stop what you were doing and check your phone then? How many of you listening to this podcast are listening on a phone? How many of you do your banking on the phone? How many run fitness apps on your phone? COVID track and trace apps on your phone? What about online shopping at places such as Amazon? How many of you use your phone to navigate places? Or hailing a cab to take you somewhere? What about taking photos and video, streaming films, radio or TV shows? 
messaging family and friends, or group chats with work colleagues or societies or gaming groups. And we haven't touched on things like surfing the actual web, let me just Google that, or using those time and soul-sucking apps known collectively as social media. I believe there's actually an app on your phone that allows you to call other people like the old-fashioned Nokia and Motorola phones used to do, you know, dialing a number and actually talking. I think it's fair to say that the smartphone has become completely enmeshed in people's lives, so much so that if a service is down and people can't use their phones, they start to panic. How many times have you seen people talk about Instagram being down or Google suffering an issue on their service so people can't access Gmail on the phone? And God forbid Twitter's down as well. But back in 2007, when Steve Jobs launched the first iPhone, none of this existed. People generally just used their phone to, you know, call other people. You might be able to text someone, although it generally involved using the numeric keyboard to create alpha characters and it took forever. There was no such thing as emojis. There were no games on the phones of the day, apart from perhaps Snake. Do you remember Snake? And most screens were just black and white and tiny rather than full colour. If someone had said in December 2006, a month before the iPhone was launched, that within 10 years the majority of the Western world and most of China and India would be running a huge chunk of their life via a handheld device, you would have looked at them like they'd just told an inappropriate joke over Christmas lunch and caused Grandma to spit her teeth into the mashed potatoes. But it's happening. My nibblings, that's nephews and nieces for those of you who don't have any, have never known a world without smartphones. My parents, both of whom are in their 80s, have smartphones and use them every day. And what's most significant about this wholesale move into smartphones is what part Apple played in it. And the answer is, ironically, very little. Sure, they put out the initial hardware and the operating system, and every year or 18 months they updated the hardware with something bigger or better or faster, and they host the App Store. But Samsung and Google did something similar, as did LG and Huawei, who built other phone hardwares that run the Android operating system. Apple didn't develop the banking apps or the social media apps or the shopping app, the fitness trackers or the track and trace apps. They developed a Maps app, but they were late to the game on that, and Google stole a march on them there. Apple didn't put in the infrastructure that allowed services like Netflix, Prime Video and Disney Plus to stream direct to your phone. Apps and services built up around the hardware and the possibilities this hardware created. Third-party companies got involved, saw the potential and ran with it. Traditional web services that were designed to run from a PC or a laptop were extended to work on a smartphone or a tablet device. Now we have a complete but ever-evolving ecosystem which allows anyone with a smartphone to almost live their whole life online. You can now literally run your day from a smartphone, from the alarm clock that wakes you in the morning to the app that has your food delivered to your door, tracks your fitness, gives you something to read, allows you to chat with friends and family, make and receive payments, navigate to and from work, and even relax with the latest Hollywood blockbuster. You don't need anything other than a smartphone, which is actually quite scary. So, Why am I in the middle of a podcast about electric vehicles and things that are interesting to electric vehicles owners talking about iPhones? Because the similarities are actually quite startling. In a recent interview on the Leaders in Cleantech podcast, Greg Jackson, the CEO of Octopus Energy, said the following. I I think the the second thing you just reminded me of is when you talked about using a smartphone to hail a cab. You know, no one knew when the iPhone launched that it was going to change the way that, you know, the cab industry worked. And it's going to be the same with energy. He's exactly right. The electric vehicle is a piece of hardware that forms part of an ecosystem. Back in 2011, when Nissan launched the first Leaf, 
It had a lot of the similar problems to the original iPhone. It was limited in what it could do because the range was so short, it was expensive. There was very little in the way of infrastructure to help support drivers. In the UK, there were very, very few fast chargers and only one rapid charge. And boy, was it expensive. Nissan updated the tech over time. The batteries got better, got denser, and the range increased. Alongside that, other companies came into the market with similar products. Renault brought out the Zoe. Mitsubishi had the IMEF. Tesla had the first-generation Roadster. Companies started to build new electric car chargers that were higher powered, up to 50 kilowatts. Ecotricity created the electric highway and put a charger in at every motorway service in the UK. Other companies started to spring up, such as Charge Your Car and Polar, to provide similar charging services. The ecosystem started to grow. Tesla were already in this market with their Roadster, which was made between 2008 and 2012. But in order to make electric vehicles acceptable on a large scale, Tesla realised that people needed a big, reliable charging network. So the supercharging network was born. When the Model S came out in 2012, the supercharging network was brought online alongside it with free charging for Model S and Model X owners. The ecosystem continued to grow. Listeners to Fully Charged Show will have heard on several occasions that Robert Llewellyn was a big petrol head buying just about every model of VW Golf that was available. Never once in that time did he ask himself, where did the petrol come from? Because that, I mean, I think that is the the critical thing that, that it took me a while to understand from just from a, a cons- the consumer end of driving an electric car and going, you know, asking all those obvious questions. Well, where does the electricity come from? Then you remember, yeah. oh, hang on, I never asked where the petrol came from in right. 45 <laughs> years of driving. So now we have an ecosystem that's starting to evolve based on ancillary factors only tangentially related to electric cars. There's a whole ecosystem that's sprung up related to home charging. A friend of the podcast, Jordan Brompton from My Energy, produces one of the best on the market. So the Zappy Charger, what can I say about it? Answers all these questions that we've just been talking about. If you're in the lucky position to have a driveway or a workplace that will allow you to put a charger in, it will load balance the property that it's in so as to not get your main fuse hot. Oh my God, I sounded like a three-year-old then. As to not heat up your <laughs> main fuse. Uh, I'm getting overexcited. Um, and it will also, you know, communicate with Octopus Agile tariffs. So when the tariff is nice and cheap and um, there's plenty of wind generation on the grid, you can charge your car. And if you've got solar panels or a wind turbine, it will charge directly off that. It is the most eco way to charge. Um, and it also does so much more than that. You know, if you put more, loads of them in a row, it'll load shed amongst all of them. It'll group limit. Um, it's just a really nifty bit of kit for charging your electric vehicle. It takes into, considera- in, into consideration absolutely everything. So boom, yeah, it's the Zappy. But this all forms part of a much larger ecosystem, which is that of energy management itself. For many, many years, energy generation and distribution was a wholesale manufacturing process. Coal, oil or gas was burned. It was used to create electricity, which was piped at a fixed price per kilowatt hour into people's houses. The national grid or equivalent was tasked with ensuring power plants were kept at a level to cover the generating requirements. The usage cycle was definite and fairly steady. In the morning, there was a power spike as people got ready for work. And between 4pm and 7pm, there was another power spike as people got home from work and started making tea. In the UK, around quarter past eight at night, there was also a power spike on a Monday and Wednesday as the Coronation Street advert break came up and people switched their kettles on to make a cuppa. The National Grid knew this and sourced power to deal with it. 
This meant having pika plants available to provide that extra bit of energy when Coronation Street went to commercial break. From time to time, unexpected things might happen. If the temperature dropped sharply, for example, the energy needs would spike as people switched on electric heaters around the house to stay warm or put the electric blanket on to heat the bed. And to deal with this, the grid set a price per kilowatt hour of energy wholesale. The price changed according to the demand and as per the market, when it was in high demand, the price went up. And when it was in low demand or there was a surplus, the price dropped. Sometimes it dropped to a negative value. This is because it was cheaper to pay electricity companies to take the electricity when demand was low and supply was high than it was to shut down pika plants and restart them again. And this brought the concept of negative pricing. Then things started to subtly change. In the last 10 years or so, the price of renewable energy plants has dropped massively. Wind turbines, especially offshore, and solar farms are much cheaper to build and quicker to bring online than, say, a nuclear power plant. Hello, Hinkley Point. And this means they can be deployed quicker and cheaper than existing energy infrastructure. It also means the unit price per kilowatt hour is lower. Coupled with this, there's been a drop in the price of solar panels themselves, and this new wave of electric vehicle owners has started to become more aware of where their electricity is coming from, and, more particularly, how much it's costing. So more and more of them have started to install solar panels on their roofs. You've only got to scan my Twitter timeline on a sunny day to see people posting graphics from their solar panel apps, which show how much power they're harvesting from the sun, and what's going into their car, their hot water, and the grid. Or their batteries. Because that's another thing that's on the rise. We've talked several times on this podcast about second-use batteries. Units from crashed EVs or very, very high-mileage EVs where the state of health of the battery is lower than desired for a car, but high enough to be used in other applications. These applications include being bundled together into a storage battery unit and situated in someone's house or garage to store their solar power. And what this does then is open up electricity pricing and management to the end consumer. It works like this. I know from providers like Octopus Energy what the price of electricity is going to be for the next 24 hours on a half-hourly basis. Between 1600 and 1900 I know it's going to be very expensive. So at that time, I have three options. I can elect to use solar power from a photovoltaic grid if I have one. I can elect to draw power from a battery if I have one. Or I can minimise my electricity usage between those times and schedule it to a time when the price is cheaper. And this has several positive effects. Firstly, it reduces the cost of your electricity by minimising the amount you draw from the grid at peak times. It reduces the load on the grid overall, meaning the price for other users who don't have this functionality is reduced too. And thirdly, it minimises the need for peaker plants to be brought online to deal with peak requirements. This means that more and more of the energy can be sourced via renewables rather than oil, coal or gas. The flip side of this is that when power is cheap, such as in the middle of the night when demand is low and say strong winds mean supply is high, people with batteries can elect to take that cheap or even free electricity and put it into their batteries. If you don't have a separate home battery storage unit, you can elect instead to use that cheap electricity to charge your EV overnight. Or you can schedule things like your dishwasher or washing machine to run at cheaper eight times. Or to refill your iPhone, iPad, tablet, Kindle, portable battery bank. Or run a slow cooker to have breakfast ready for you the following morning. Or any number of things where you defer the usage of the electricity from the peak times. However, at the moment, even if 
everyone running a time of day tariff did this all day every day, it wouldn't make a huge amount of difference. There's simply too few of these users around at the moment. But companies like Octopus Energy are growing all the time, and at some point in the near future, they're going to hit that tipping point, just like the iPhone did. In much the same way the smartphone changed the way we run our lives, renewable energy and the associated technologies are going to do the same. Ultimately, all new housing will have solar panels or access to a communal wind farm as standard. There'll also be an EV charge point on every house with off-street parking. Communal wind farms are already becoming a thing with companies such as Ripple Energy selling shares in their latest wind farm to customers who benefit from reduced electricity bills as a result. VW recently announced that their upcoming electric cars will have vehicle-to-grid technology as standard. This effectively plugs your car into your house and allows current to pass in both directions between the house, the car, and the electricity grid. This cuts down your power draw from the grid, freeing up supply, and it insulates your house from things like power cuts. Clever apps, ironically running on a smartphone, will likely be able to manage the mechanics behind this tech to make sure you always have enough charge available when you need it. But what vehicle-to-grid also does is it reduces the draw the grid needs to cover peak power requirements. 10 million EVs using vehicle-to-grid at night, each providing 2 kilowatt-hours of energy, gives 20 gigawatt-hours of energy. And that's the total amount produced by natural gas in the UK at 6 o'clock last night, according to Drax Insights. There's a link in the show notes. So where does this leave us? In the same way as the smartphone revolutionised and fundamentally changed the way we live, the next stage of evolution will come with renewable energy. Things such as electric cars and bikes and scooters and skaters and buses, etc., alongside renewable power sources, time-of-day tariffs and vehicles or grid, will fundamentally change the way energy is created, stored and used by the world. The change will be slow to start with. The fundamental tech, such as the electric vehicle, is already here time-of-day tariffs and solar panels are already here. Companies like Octopus Energy, My Energy, and other OEMs will start to propagate the ecosystem with products and technologies. And this means in another 10 years' time, some cabbie in a small town in Yorkshire will have an electric vehicle running solely on renewable energy, charged from a local wind farm, piped into his battery at the cheapest time of day or night, while the majority of the energy we produce will come from renewable sources, and natural gas will have been displaced as the largest single source of energy. Solar and wind farms will exist alongside huge battery banks to ensure clean, cheap, reliable energy for our lives. Then we can start to talk about decarbonising heating. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. Airless, rubberless tyres. I don't know how many of you remember the lunar rover that landed on the moon back when the world was still in black and white. The tyres on that thing were made of a flexible metal material that couldn't puncture and gripped on the dusty lunar surface. Well, the Smart Tire Company has taken NASA's airless tyres and commercialised them for bicycles. The main driver behind doing this is to reduce both tyre wear and tyre loss due to punctured tyres being thrown away. By one estimate, riders in San Francisco alone throw out more than 100,000 inner tubes every year, and that's enough to wrap the Golden Gate Bridge 33 times. In order to grip onto the ground, the airless tyres have a tread around the alloy made from polyurethanium. That's easy to say. Polyurethanium, which is Smart's uh, codename for a proprietary rubber-like material. Although riding may cause some of that tread to wear away, Smart says it will produce total waste and need to be disposed of less frequently 
than all the rubber that goes into regular bike tubes and tyres. So, airless tyres for bikes, then scooters, and then cars. Watch this space. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, please use the EV Musings Twitter account, Musings EV, or I can be or I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to become an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So You've Gone Electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. At the moment, it's free on Kindle Unlimited, or if you're in the Kindle Lending Library, please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point? by tweeting me at MusingsEV with the words three revolutionary products and the hashtag, if you know, you know. Nothing else. If you see the tweet I sent out which announced the release of this episode, feel free to reply to that with the same phrase. Three revolutionary products, hashtag, if you know, you know. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know he gets quite excited about Eastgates and personal electric vehicles. So much so that he often finds himself overcome with enthusiasm about them. Not everything he says comes out totally coherent. My God, I sounded like a three-year-old then. Thanks for listening. Bye.